This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 34, Casey at the Bat. Hello, everyone. It's time for another Incredible Stories podcast. I'm Josh Virala, your priggish host, and thanks for being here. Oh, and make sure to share this episode if you like it, or let me know on either of our various social media platforms. I'll reference them at the end of the show. And of course, you can always send me an email at contact at incrediblestoriespodcast.com. With the 4th of July coming up, I thought it would be appropriate to do a story that rings of American culture. From hot rods to apple pies, America has many cultural touchstones that help define it. But few things could be looked upon as more American than perhaps baseball, the American pastime. And baseball itself has a rich culture, and even its vernacular has been permeating our Yankee lingo since the 18th century. But I want to focus in on one particular part of baseball's history, and that is the origin and a little bit of diving into the real-life counterparts of the most famous baseball poem, Casey at the Bat. Here's what I know. Baseball is commonly credited to have been invented in Cooperstown, New York in 1839 by future Civil War General Abner Doubleday which is a very cool name, but this is largely believed to be untrue, or at least a very shaky claim. In fact, the first mention of baseball in America seems to be way back in 1791, and is referenced in a bylaw of a city ordinance in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which deemed the game of baseball to be troubling and banned it from being played within a certain vicinity of the old-timey meeting house. But let's go to where baseball really started taking off. The late 1800s, and specifically 1888, when a certain baseball poem was written for the San Francisco Examiner. The poem of Casey at the Bat might be most familiar to most people from the Walt Disney cartoon made in 1946. And I'll link this in the show notes if you aren't familiar with it, but I must say I rather enjoyed it myself. Anyway, the original poem was published on June 3rd of 1888 with the name Casey at the Bat, a ballad of a republic sung in the year of 1888. Very catchy. And for those not familiar with the poem, allow me to illuminate you. Ariel, take us to the baseball park, please. The lookout wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood 4-2, but with one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first, and Burroughs did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to that hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought, if only Casey could get a whack at that, they'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey as did also Jimmy Blake, and the former was a Lulu and the latter was a cake. So upon that stricken multitude grim melancholy sat, where there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. 
But Flynn let drive a single, to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much-despised, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted, and the men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second, and Flynn a-hugging third. And from five thousand throats or more, there rose a lusty yell that rumbled through the valley, rattled in the dell. It knocked upon the mountains and recoiled upon the flat, for Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile on Casey's face. And when, responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat, no stranger in the crowd could doubt it was Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then, while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance gleamed in Casey's eyes. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now, the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air. And Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the Empire said. From the benches black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of a storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the Empire! shouted someone on the stand. And it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult. He bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew. But Casey still ignored it, and the Empire said, Strike two! Fraud! cried Madden thousands, and echoed answered, Fraud! But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. And they knew that Casey wouldn't let the ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence, his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball. And now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, that somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. All right, so the poem highlights the heartbreaking loss of a baseball game at the hands of an arrogant hometown hero. So how did this fantastic slice of sporting flavor get to the examiner? Who wrote it? Why and how did it get so popular? Where is Mudville? And was Casey a real-life baseball player? Hold your horses, Jimmy. I'll get to all that. But first, let's start with how it became so popular. Well, after publication in The Examiner by someone using the pen name of Finn, the story was received much nonchalantly, although I'm sure readers were tickled with it. 
But across country, a few weeks later, the New York Sun thought it was a quaint little poem and published the last eight stanzas and attributed the poem to Anonymous, as Finn was, after all, a pen name. But again, not much buzz followed it. That is, until a jolly chap named Archibald Clavering Gunter, whom was a novelist who often clipped newspaper articles for inspiration. He happened upon the poem of Casey at the Bat and thought it would be good for something in the future, although at the present time, he knew not what it would be. Side note, I would recommend naming your firstborn child Archibald Clavering. That's just pimptastic. So, some weeks later, in August, two months after the initial publishing of the poem, Archibald saw that two of the National League's top baseball teams were attending the Wallach Theater in New York. And these teams, I believe, were the New York Giants, now known as the San Francisco Giants, and the Chicago White Stockings, who are now the Chicago Cubs, not the Chicago White Sox, but the Chicago White Sox did take the name White Stockings after the Cubs abandoned it and they merged into the league, but that's a bit off track. So the two baseball teams were attending the theater to see the comedian slash thespian DeWolf Hopper, another awesome name, but he was a fairly big deal for the time and happened to be friends with Archibald. So Archibald said, aha! I know what I want to do with this quaint little poem. My good friend would be perfect to read this for the teams. So Archibald goes to DeWolf and asks if he could do a comedic reading of the poem. And DeWolf was like, hell yeah, bro. I'll read this poem. I'll read the crap out of this poem. Well, as you can imagine, the famous ball players of the time loved it and it began to spread. Reviews were positive of DeWolf's reciting of the poem, and he began to perform it more and more. All in all, some say he performed it over 10,000 times during the course of his life. Now, soon after the first reviews came out, no less than three people came forward claiming to be the author of Casey at the Bat. And as the authors, they demanded satisfaction in the form of royalties. But DeWolf didn't pay anything as none of the claimed authors could prove they wrote it. In fact, DeWolf kept on performing it all over the country for the next four to five years. Then one day, he was performing it in Worcester, Massachusetts, and a gentleman named Ernst Thayer was in attendance. And after the show, Thayer sent an old-fashioned text message backstage, also known as a handwritten note, asking to meet with DeWolf. Upon meeting him, he claimed to be the actual author of the poem and told him he was cool with DeWolf reading the poem and didn't want any royalties. Was he the actual author? Well, to answer that, let's go back to the San Francisco Examiner. There was a guy named George Hurst, who was a mining engineer and prominent California businessman and one day, with all his money, he decided to buy the San Francisco Examiner in 1880, mostly for the purpose to use the paper to promote his political ambitions. And wouldn't you know it, it worked by Joe. <laughs> he was elected to the U.S. Senate, and upon doing so, he gave the newspaper to his son, who was none other than William Randolph Hearst, as in 
the newspaper and communications giant that influenced the way Americans consumed and read their news? But he may be a story in of himself for another time. But anyway, William had just graduated from college where he had been editor of the very distinguished Harvard Lampoon. And during his time there, he had some friends whom he worked with on the paper. And their names were Eugene Lent, F.H. Biggs, and Ernst L. Thayer. So when William Randolph Hearst started the San Francisco Examiner, he brought on his best chums to write columns on the regs. And Thayer's pen name was... Finn. So there you go. He was indeed the author. But what's this quirky poem about? Was Mighty Casey a real guy? Let's have a look-see, hmm? In the late 1800s, baseball was played by a lot of Irish folk. In fact, over 24 players from the period between 1880 and 1920 who were of Irish descent were honored with enshrinement in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Casey happens to be one of the most popular Irish last names, so the identity of Casey was largely associated with an Irishman. And there were no shortages of players claiming to be THE Casey of the poem. Some of the more prominent Casey Bs were Michael King Kelly, also known as $10,000 Kelly. He played 16 years in the majors, mostly with the White Stockings and the Boston Beanie from 1878 to 1893. And he was pretty good too. Batting average was 308. He had 1,357 hits, 69 home runs. He was known as $10,000 Kelly because he was sold by the Chicago White Stockings to the Boston Bean Eaters for a record $10,000. And the very popular song, Slide Kelly Slide, was also about him. And a 1927 movie was made of the same name. This guy was a big deal. Probably the top flashiest Irish player of his day. But he wasn't big enough to have two famous baseball writings to be about him. Despite claiming to be the mighty Casey after his baseball career when he took up a vaudeville career, and vaudeville were a type of entertainment popular in the 20th century, kind of like a variety act, this poem was not inspired by him according to Thayer. Now another player named John Cahill stepped up to the plate, if you will, claiming to be the Casey of Thayer's poem. He wasn't as inspiring as Kelly, and I don't think many people took him too seriously on his claim. He wasn't a good hitter, or pitcher, or fielder, and his nickname wasn't Mighty, it was Patsy. Weak. Now a more interesting candidate for Casey was someone named Dan Casey, who played ball from 1884 to 1890. This Casey claimed that Thayer attended a game he played in for the Philadelphia Quakers in 1887. In this game, Casey said they were playing Boston and were down 4-3, and he was the last person at bat and, of course, let down the crowd. And to fortify this claim, Casey said that the place where the Quakers played, Huntington Avenue Grounds, was once in a neighborhood called Mudville which of course was the name of the city that Mighty Casey played for in the poem. Well, Dan Casey's claims were good enough for pretty much everyone as he made it a point to insist he was the guy. 
and he was quite the media darling for being the famous Casey. But some writers looked into his claims many years later, like in the 1940s, and they concluded that the game Casey was claiming to have been the inspiration actually ended in a 5-5 tie in which Casey had gotten a ninth inning hit which drove in two runs. Hmm, seems pretty shaky to me. I mean, that's not at all like the poem. Now, in all the years, Thayer remained pretty consistent that Casey wasn't actually based on anybody. But in 1935, Thayer actually admitted who the real Casey was which apparently garnered little attention as the fake Casey's kept persisting for many years after. And who was the real Casey? The inspiration came from an old high school classmate, an Irishman named ironically, Daniel H. Casey. So Dan Casey was close, but no cigar. Why would Thayer write an embarrassing poem about a big hero letting everyone down? Well, Daniel Casey apparently threatened to beat up Thayer after Thayer made fun of him in his school's newspaper, which Thayer was, of course, the editor. So he had motive to kind of keep on hating, as the kids say. But other than that slight fact, Thayer did say that Daniel Casey was only a vague template for Mighty Casey. So there you go. But Josh, how about Mudville? Was that a real place? As you might imagine, many towns had hitched their wagons to being the real Mudville. Just like any popular thing that has ambiguous origins, everyone wanted a piece of the fame. Stockton, California and Holliston, Massachusetts were some of the top contenders. Stockton was called Mudville during 1888, a time when Thayer lived in San Francisco. Stockton is about 80 miles from San Francisco though. On the other hand, Holliston, Massachusetts was only a few miles from Thayer's hometown of Worcester. And Holliston had a neighborhood called Mudville. But then again, Thayer did cover baseball as a writer for the Examiner while he was there. Although, probably the best evidence is that Thayer's family's textile mill was located near the Mudville baseball field. Okay, I'm going to go with Holliston, but what did Thayer actually have to say about it? Well, like the identity of the main character, Thayer insisted Mudville wasn't based on any place really. Psh, I ain't buying that. And neither were Stockton and Holliston. In fact, in 2012, the two Mudvilles thought to settle their dispute on the baseball field and Holliston sent their Mudville team to Stockton to play their Mudville team in an old-timey rules baseball match. And the winner of the match was... Well, nobody. Well, I mean, there was a winner of the game. Stockton won 10-4, but Holliston claimed that them losing proved them to be the real Mudville as they lost just like the team in the poem. That's pretty funny. But in the end, both towns have their homage to Casey. Stockton has a hot dog stand in a local market called Casey's. And Holliston has not one, but two statues of Casey. One in their town square and one at Casey's pub. And in all honesty, I'm sure Thayer used a little bit of each of them as an inspiration for his poem. So what did Thayer think about all the hoopla surrounding this poem? 
The public fascination, its continued popularity, the bickering back and forth between who the real Casey was and where the real Mudville was located. Well, if still alive today, I'm sure Thayer wouldn't really care much one way or the other. He was very much like a cat in the matter of the fame of the poem, indifferent. In fact, he said, quote, Its persistent vogue is simply unaccountable, and it would be hard to say if it has given me more pleasure than annoyance. So, I guess he wasn't really a huge fan. I guess it's hard to kind of be known for a silly, playful poem about baseball. Thayer eventually moved on from the paper to work at his family's textile factory, and then died at the ripe old age of 77 in 1940. And that's the story of Casey at the Bat. And now you know what I know. I never really thought much about the backstory of this poem, and at its surface, it's fun and a snapshot of America's baseball culture in the late 1800s. But really, the poem is much more than just the tale of an arrogant athlete. It tells us that, hey, people fail, and it's okay. But really, it's all about perspective, right? I mean, the pitcher in the poem, I mean, how clutch was he? I'm sure his side of the story is that of facing adversity and staring down an imposing force with defeat all but certain, but then overcoming it against the odds becoming an unlikely hero. But despite Casey's shortcomings in the poem, it's hard to actually not root for him. The poem is framed as that of a hometown fan cheering on their guy. And every sports fan has been in that situation, no matter how unlikable their star is to the other side. People generally want Casey to succeed, and I'm sure his arrogance is looked at as misplaced confidence to many. So much so that in 1906, a new poem called Casey's Revenge was written by Grantland Rice. Another awesome name. But his poem gives Mighty Casey a rematch against the pitcher that struck him out. Although in this poem, Casey is known now as Strikeout Casey. I'll link that poem in the show notes, but I'll read the last stanzas for you. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, dark clouds may hide the sun, and somewhere bands no longer play and children have no fun. And somewhere over blighted loves, there hangs a heavy pall. But Mudville hearts are happy now, for Casey hit the ball. Hooray for underdogs! And now there aren't as many things as American as that. And now for something you can always root for. The haiku! Many times we try. At times we may fail and fall. Your story's not done. And that's all for this time, guys. Check out our main site for other stories on IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Go ahead and send me a haiku. Remember, the format of a haiku is five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. So don't be scared. Send them in. And you can send them to contact at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. Rate us on iTunes and peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh, and remember, 
The journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word. Get 